and welcome to the latest episode of Jumpcast, the podcast from the award-winning team behind Jumpcut Online. My name is Sarah and I am your host for another Disney Classics episode and I am joined, of course, by my co-host Barry. Barry, how are you doing today? I am doing well. Thank you, Sarah. This is a, a weird kind of moment in Disney <laughs> and as they say, like the, it gets darkest before the dawn, so it's going to get weird. Uh, mm-hmm. especially I think we're, we're we're starting to get weird now uh, I think it gets progressively weirder until it gets normal again and we kind of hit like the renaissance period with Little Mermaid but that is four five maybe six films away I can't remember um, mm-hmm. so we've got a lot of weird stuff to talk about uh, until then and, and one of the weirder well it's an interesting one to talk about I think we'll have a, an interesting time talking about the rescuers today which I believe it's film 23 look at us go yeah, that is it. Twenty three, and yeah, you're right. It's uh, I don't think we've had a period like this since we talked about the wartime package films, where there was a kind of unbroken run of quite strange and interesting films. Um, again, I think this period there there are some that are really beloved. I think particularly when you get into the eighties, um, there's some films there that are really really popular. I don't know whether they kind of hold up or they have that longevity that some of the golden era stuff or the other classics have but there are certainly some that mean a lot to a lot of people and because they watch them as as children and i think that this is one of those as well i can imagine that if you really loved this as this film as a kid you would have you know a lot of nostalgia about it um i did not have that because uh this was the first time i watched this film um can confirm after watching it that i have not watched it before i was um (laughs) uncertain (laughs) yeah because i think i and uh, well there's a reason for this because there's a person who is connected with both but i think that i in my head think that this and um an american tale are the same film and i know that (laughs) and i know that one isn't disney um but they came out at around the same time i mean i think there's a few years between them um but animated films I'll, I'll about mice exactly when it comes out because it, it comes up in the history bit ah uh, there we fun. go <laughs> yeah i know don bluth is obviously connected with both so it's not completely unfair to make that comparison i think but um yeah it and, is and they're both films about mice i mean there aren't that many yeah exactly and kind of like similar like adventure Mm-hmm. stories as well that mice some of the mice have european accents so you know i i'm not mad about it and <laughs> yeah exactly so yeah this was the first time i watched it and um i've got some thoughts so i think i'm ready to uh i'm ready to get into that um so we are of course today talking about the rescuers from 1977 and this is a story of uh, two mice of the rescue aid society searching for a little girl kidnapped by unscrupulous treasure hunters. So, like you said, this is an interesting time for Disney, so I think we need to I think we need to hear some more about that and uh yeah, blow our minds with some with some facts. <laughs> uh sure. Well, to to start off, this is 1977, which is the same year uh The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh was released, which was uh successful at the box office, but that wasn't really uh you know, it was comprised of three shorts that they had previously made. And really, they were just, all they had to do for the 1977 release was add a couple minutes of Christopher Robin and Winnie the Pooh at the end. So it doesn't really, it didn't really factor into that, um, their like feature film making. It just kind of was a matter of circumstance that they they pieced them together and created that package film. 
Um, but The Rescuers was actually in development for a really long time, as is something we've heard a lot in the past and will probably continue to hear. Um, going back to 1962 uh, was when development of the film began, and it was a planned adaptation of The Rescuers and Miss Bianca to books written by um, a Marjorie. I apologize. I have not written down your last name for some reason. I always do, but I forget her last name. But her name was Marjorie. And she wrote wrote, um, a series of, she wrote a lot of uh, children's books. I'll I'll tell you the name at some point before this podcast is over. My apologies. Um, She wrote um, a book called The Rescuers in 1959 and a book called Miss Bianca in 1962. And there there was quite a few more. I think there were seven or eight more uh, books she ended up writing about the, the rescuers and their adventures. Um, So the kind of story was originally about rescuing a poet who was held captive by this sort of like totalitarian government in a Siberia-like stronghold. Um, And it kind of became this like big story of international intrigue. And Walt Disney felt that it was simply too political and the overtones were too strong. And he he did not like that for a Disney film. So it was shelved. kind of never to be brought up again, but then after Walt passed in the early 70s, uh, the project was revived as kind of um, a beginning for like the next generation of animators, uh, which was led kind of by Don Bluth, who we just spoke about a minute ago, and went on basically to found his own studio shortly after this, um, which many films such as um, Land Before Time and as we talked about American Tale are released and, and so on and so forth. But he was kind of the head of this at, at this point, anyway, this like new generation of Disney filmmakers. And for a while now, um, particularly in the 60s and basically every other film in the 70s, uh, most of the Disney films were very comedic in, in angle and, you know, all about the jokes and the gags and, and the comedy rather than those um, heartfelt kind of adventures that Disney really originated on. You know, you think Snow White and Pinocchio and Dumbo, Bambi, Cinderella, stuff like that, that the, the really the studio's bread and butter, and they've kind of gotten away from that in the last couple of decades. And The Rescuers to them was their attempt to bring that back and kind of take Disney back to the roots um, as a animation studio who creates these heartfelt stories, trying to recall, I guess, the glory of the Golden Age. Um, so... This is a kind of another sort of changing of the guard happening here in this movie. Uh, we had the first one in the strike in the 40s where a lot of the original animators left. Then we had the passing of Walt Disney just before the Jungle Book. And now we have this new one because the nine old men who really were there from even before Snow White, but you know, all worked on Snow White. And basically at least a handful of them were present in every single film, all of the first 23 um, Walt Disney animated films, which is pretty incredible considering they spanned uh well this is exactly 40 years now um from snow white so really they've been at the studio for over 40 years uh and this is actually the last one where uh, most of them were involved of um milk call sorry not milk call mark davis had left um the studio after 101 dalmatians um there were a couple others who who weren't no who were no longer there but frank thomas ollie johnson milk call eric Lull, eric larson wolfgang ratherman and john lansbury so six of them um were still very much present and this was the last time that they were all involved um so this isn't technically the last film with the nine men i should note for the next movie fox and the hound which we'll talk about next week um, they were involved, but it was kind of like a, they created some of the character concepts and, and, and kind of started with the story, but it was very much a, 
we're going to retire now, you know, kind of a, a changing of the garden, passing on to the next generation. So this is the last film that they all worked on in a complete sense. So kind of like from beginning to end, they worked on. Um, and John Lounsbury, who co-directed with Wolfgang Reitherman, was the first of the Nine Old Men to pass away. He passed away in 1976. So he actually passed away a year before the film was released. So unfortunately, it was not able to see uh, what a success it became. And it was a big one, which we'll talk about soon. Um, but speaking of this next generation of sorts, there are a few key names who are credited for the first time uh, at Disney. And some of the names include Ron Clements and Glenn Keane. Now, Ron Clements, you've almost certainly heard of if you're not sure where you've heard him from. He co-directed a couple films like Great Mouse Detective, Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Hercules, Treasure Planet, Princess of the Frog, and most recently Moana. So he's he's still there. Um, and he co-directed all of them with John Musker. Uh, they're a very famous kind of duo, basically kind of like the new Wolfgang Ratherman and John Lounsbury, because they worked on, they co-directed a number of films. And now uh, these two were kind of the next ushering in, and they're obviously still there. Uh, and John Musker's first credit was in the next film, and Fox and the Hound. Uh, and then there's Glenn Keane, who worked on animation and story for films like Oliver and Company, Little Mermaid, Rescuers Down Under, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, Pocahontas, Tarzan, Treasure Planet, Tangled, and Wreck-It Ralph. So he's, again, also at the studio still. Um, so really ushering in this next generation of, of guys who have been there now for over 40 years, just like how the Nine Old Men were there for over 40 years as well. Um, so it's kind of the, the, the theme of... of the rescuers really is kind of ushering in this new era and one of the ways it does that is the animation process changes slightly uh since 101 dalmatians disney used this xerography process which we talked about a lot when we talked about 101 and it was this like new photocopying way to to save a lot of money and still create the same kind of quality um and this was there's a new kind of advancement in this in this tech and previously was only able to kind of produce these black outlines on characters which is why every character has a black outline from um, 101 dimensions onwards uh, but that's no longer the case in in the rescuers and it allowed uh cell artists to kind of create a softer looking line which kind of makes them feel a bit more like they're actually characters without you know obviously human beings don't walk around with a black outline uh so it kind of helped this this idea of of kind of boosted creativity, if you will, particularly in color and kind of allowed them to do new things in color. Um, another kind of changing of the guard that I didn't mention last week, uh, the music, George Bruns had done basically every film from Snow White all the way to Robin Hood. Robin Hood was his last film. Um, so the songs were done by Carol Connors and Ayn Robbins, uh, and they wrote one song with Sammy Fain, who, which was uh, Someone's Waiting For You, which was the one and only um, Oscar nomination for this film. And this is actually the last one that gets nominated, I believe, until The Little Mermaid, which gets quite a few. Um, and the music was done by Artie Butler. And an interesting thing about the songs in this and the music in this is that none of the songs are actually sung by any of the characters, which is the first time this has happened since Bambi. So quite a long uh, streak of films in which characters were singing the songs in the movie. And, and this is the first time where um they're they're not and in fact they're all actually sung by the the same woman as well um so cast is you know we we, we talked at the kind of the beginning they kind of just cast uh not not random but like not really like established big time actors but that's very much changed in the last number of films uh, and this one's no exception we have bob newhart as bernard who uh, is still going actually and was kind of a regular on the big bang theory uh, for a long time, he's a very well-known, very beloved uh, comedic actor. 
Um, Ava Gabor is Bianca. Uh, she returns. She was previously Duchess and the Aristocats, and this time she comes with the right accent uh, because <laughs> Ava Gabor is from Hungary, and uh, Bianca, as we see in the Mouse UN segment, is uh, the Hungarian representative. Uh, Geraldine Page is Madame Medusa, and we have our next uh, Oscar winner, although at this point, Geraldine Page hadn't won one. She won in 1985. Uh, we have another child playing Penny, which is one of the reasons it works so well, because Disney continues their tradition of using children to play children, which is surprisingly rare these days, um, but effective nonetheless. So Michelle Stacy plays Penny. And we have Joe Flynn, who plays Mr. Snoops, who was a major character actor in uh, Disney live action films. He was in stuff like um, the Herbie, Herbie the Love Bug and, and a few others, or a bunch of others, I should say. And he actually passed away in 1974 but he recorded his lines uh before his passing so he did not see the the end result either but luckily uh he managed they were able to get his lines recorded before then and box office wise this was this film was a huge success it was more or less one of their most popular to date uh and actually it was hugely popular especially in france and west germany which isn't surprising considering the kind of international scope of the movie even though it all takes place in in america um, and actually, in France and West Germany, uh, they both uh, outgrow Star Wars, because this was the same year Star Wars came out, which is not an easy thing to do, uh, <laughs> make more money than Star Wars. But in those two countries, it, it managed it. Uh, it made about $48 million on on release and made a lot more in future re-releases. Uh, and at the time, it broke the record for the highest grossing animated film over an opening weekend, uh, which was not broken again until, uh, interestingly enough, Don Bluth, An American Tale in 1986. So it had nine years of being the most successful, at least in an opening weekend, uh, animated film. And this was kind of that um, moment for Disney where the kind of executives were paying more attention and, and realizing that, you know, maybe maybe it is more of a lucrative um, part of the company than, than we thought. Because again, you know, they have TV, they have live action movies, they've got theme parks, merchandising, they have so many different avenues at this point. Um, of making money and it's interesting this is exactly 40 years on from from snow white where really all they had was you know animation that was that was their driving force that was everything uh that they had and you know they kind of sank or or swam based on animation and animation only now they could kind of afford to make these mistakes in animation and, and not really put that much money into it because they were making so much from everything else and it felt more like they were just kind of they kept these animators on and they kept these things going as more of a legacy kind of thing rather than doing it because they were super passionate about creating more animated films um but yeah so it's so this is kind of the film that made them change their minds a bit and uh yeah it was kind of set up potential for more success in disney and we get this shift to these new animators and it's kind of the beginning it's kind of the end of the old guard, another old guard of Disney and the beginning of a brand new generation of animators. And they wouldn't really come into big trouble for a few more years yet, but we'll we'll get to that when we talk about the Black Cauldron, which kind of shook up everything and perhaps not for the best. Um, but yeah, and by the way, I have learned that the author's name was Marjorie Sharp. I'm so sorry. Marjorie Sharp's <laughs> family, if you are listening, please don't hate me. Uh, Marjorie Sharp was the, was the writer of the original Rescuer story. Yeah. <laughs> we got there. We pulled it back. <laughs> I, I was like, you know, where is the, where is her name? I always write it down. I did not. I remembered it was Marjorie, though. But that's it. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure we will be forgiven. Um. <laughs> Yeah, I was in doing my research for this film. I was 
quite surprised to see how successful it was. So I thought this film was okay and I have seen worse Disney films and I have certainly seen better films and something about the whole film felt quite strange to me and a bit off. Like it it didn't really know what it was trying to be tonally and there's some inconsistencies as well in the animation and in the style of the the backgrounds and stuff in particular and I think we'll we'll get on to talking about that but yeah to to hear how successful it was in terms of that I I saw that stat as well about it outgrossing Star Wars and I just couldn't believe that because I mean maybe you know at the time this you know quite charming and Advent, you know, adventurous story about these these two little mice going off to save save a girl was exactly what people needed to see at the time. But I don't think it's aged particularly well, and I think that there are some real failures in the storytelling and its pacing. And there were moments where I just thought, "This, I'm watching the same thing over and over again, and it doesn't really seem to be going anywhere." So, yeah, surprised to hear how successful it was and I'm not really sure I can see uh how or why it was so successful (laughs) but um I know you're kind of on on the same page with me in terms of your Mm -hmm. thoughts towards this one yeah you know it's man I, I I remember enjoying it more as a kid but it also it wasn't one that I would like regularly revisit um it wasn't it didn't really grab me I guess in that way although I have quite fond memories of like Bernard and Bianca and I remembered like kind of the main like I remembered the girl, the villain, and the two mites, and I can't say I remembered really much else about it. It's I've been struggling with it today though. I've just been thinking like, did I hate it or did I like quite like it or is it somewhere in between? I mean, there's it it's kind of one of the ugliest Disney movies, and I it's interesting because there's real moments of like it looks really great at some points. Um, but I I do want to stress some because it's it's not very <laughs> often, and I think mm. this is kind of like a period of of you know we're, we're talking how like Disney wasn't big into animation at this point, and they were kind of just churning them out um, more as like a felt almost like a legacy thing to like honor the the history of the company rather than like really using the feature films as like a way to generate a lot of money, which they now certainly do, uh, mm. and they and they did. To, to start things off and for a long time but you know after Walt after Walt's passing it was kind of like what are we doing now um is it even worth you know continuing on with this stuff like is there enough there for people to to care about and honestly most of them pretty much all of them have been at least a little successful at the box office so the answer is is a resounding yes mm. uh but the quality drop is is particularly noticeable because they weren't putting the same amount of money they were in so it you know when you Animation is pretty dependent on on budget and and being able to create these worlds and create them authentically and create them well. It, it costs a lot of money, and they weren't putting that in. I think this had a budget of seven and a half million. And if you're looking back at Cinderella, which had was like a four or five million dollar budget, and that was 27 years earlier, and mm. a lot changes in 27 years. Yeah. And money, you know, five million is not worth the same five million. You know, it's it's value. You know, money. It takes more money to do stuff now. You know, you you ask, go ask your parents or grandparents how much like a comic book cost back then or anything <laughs> cost back then. And it's a heck of a lot or a house. It would blow your mm. mind how cheap houses were. But, you know, that's the thing. So like over time, things cost more. And when you're basically putting the same amount of money towards it as you were 30 years ago, the results are going to be noticeably uh, different. And mm. sometimes it works, uh, you know, looking at 
the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh, which which I wouldn't say is extravagantly animated, but I think it looks beautiful because it it really matches that storybook kind of aesthetic that they go for. Mm. But here, uh, it the black the backgrounds are really flat. I mean, it's this is an issue we've had really since like Sword in the Stone, uh, where you know a lot of the environments just don't look very dynamic. They don't look very fleshed out. They feel very much like painted backgrounds and and painted like images in like that the backdrops, if you will, rather than like Sleeping Beauty or Bambi or Snow White or anything where they, they felt like they were a part of the universe that these characters were in. And there's indeed many, many moments in The Rescuers where it looks like the characters in the background aren't mixing together properly. And it mm-hmm. doesn't feel like they're authentically where they are. And it feels like they're kind of like photoshopped in or like um, superimposed onto the background, which is kind of what they do in the process but that's not how it's supposed to look you know it's supposed to look like they're interacting with the background or they are part of that Mm. world and a lot of there's a lot of moments in this where it doesn't feel like they are and it feels very jarring uh in a lot of different places because all of a sudden it kind of takes you out of that world yeah and like actually in the same shot i would notice kind of inconsistencies Mm -hmm. in how the characters were drawn so you were talking about this you know development of the of the technology meant that the characters could have that kind of softer outline and not that sort of like harsh black outline like we've seen in in some of the ones um just before this but i would be kind of like looking at a at a moment you know with a number of characters on the screen and some of them would be drawn kind of like very very soft and you almost wouldn't be able to kind of like see their outline and then there would be some that were drawn very differently and there wouldn't be any kind of rhyme or reason to that because sometimes it happened in the same shot and even i noticed some uh continuity errors as well and i have not noticed (laughs) any continuity errors in disney films prior to this i'm sure there have been some that i just missed but there was a really obvious one when uh bianca and bernard are waiting at the airport uh for their flight uh with the albatross and um bianca's uh jacket kind of appears and disappears uh, you know it where it shouldn't be basically <laughs> so like she's she's looking out the window the jacket is nowhere to be seen and then in the next shot she's wearing it and then in the shot after that she isn't um so just like a couple of things like that that i that i picked up on and yeah certainly the backgrounds as well it just there were moments like don't get me wrong there were moments where it looked really different and really quite striking actually thinking about the the scene where they are taking off um the color in that scene is really really vivid i think the sky is like bright orange and quite often the colors of their clothes are very vivid as well we get the the purples that bianca wears and the red that um bernard wears and that was quite striking in moments but then there were also times when it just looked very dull and very flat and there just didn't seem i think the lack of consistency to the animation was the thing that really bugged me about this and that's for sure yeah that's not something that i've ever noticed in a disney film before where it almost didn't feel like all of the all of the parts were collaborating as they should and it's interesting because as as well in the research for this you know we both sort of found out that the animators really like talk up the (laughs) talk up this film and some of them describe it as you know their best work or how proud they are of how this film looks and 
absolutely i appreciate all the craft and skill that goes into animation uh i it's not something that i am skilled at so it feels wrong of me to you know criticize and say (laughs) that that something looks bad yeah but at the same time yeah well (laughs) but it's just did you find that as well like just how overwhelmingly positive everyone seemed to be that was involved in this film and i literally watched it yesterday and i was like did was this the same film did i watch the wrong film (laughs) i think i think what it kind of comes down to is the fact that it's a lot of their last work Mm. um you know and it's kind of their their swan song and and people have a very sentimental look at that and look i i say ugly i mean it still looked better than a lot of things Mm. um but if you're looking at like their other work like stuff like the, the fact that these people worked on like cinderella sleeping beauty pinocchio which cannot pinocchio is still kind of we talked about it way back but it's kind of that's that one that people still look at as like mm. the greatest example of animation you know fantasia all these incredible looking films 101 dalmatians even with the newer style but still looked amazing you know all of these all of these films it's it, it's surprising that anyone would consider um the rescuers be <laughs> their best work. I mean, there's some great stuff in it. The, the mice look great most mm. of the time. Um, there's a lot of amazing sequences with water that look really good. Mm. Um, there's the whole scene where like Penny is um, retrieving the diamond that's really tense and really well made, and the water is great and really effective there. Uh, there's there's great moments, and there's a really good moment where the fireworks go off on her boat ship house kind of hybrid. Um, and I think that looks really amazing. I actually took mm. note of that because it's the un- only kind of moment where I was like, "Wow, this actually looks really good." Mm. Um, because for the most part, it it, it just it's just inconsistent, and I guess that's part of a, a lack of money. And I guess it's also kind of, you know, switching from the same kind of people who had worked on these films for like forty years to people who were being credited for the first time. Mm. Yeah, it definitely now that knowing that kind of context as well that this this film kind of happened when that guard was changing i think that makes se- i think that makes sense why it does have that kind of inconsistent feel to it because even if you know the the nine old men who were who were working on this one you know they they were kind of for a lot of them like you said it was their last film so they're kind of winding down and obviously still involved um, but wanting to kind of like pass the proverbial yeah. baton over to the next generation of animators. And when when you are doing that, naturally there is going to be some kind of clash in the styles because... And some sort of disconnect, yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. Because, you know, the, the new people or the kind of up-and-coming people are wanting to make their marks. You know, perhaps they are influenced or affected by you know those kind of like old animators who are still there they're trying to perhaps they're even you know drawing or animating in a style that they feel they want or something like that you know you you, you don't kind of know the ins and outs of it but i think that without knowing that i think i would just look at this film and be like it really doesn't look good but i'm not making <laughs> i'm not making an excuse for it but i think no, that no i i agree yeah, knowing knowing that and kind of like what was happening at the time, it makes sense why it looks the way that it does, I think. Yeah, it's just, I, I think it's also, you know, we keep saying the budget and I think, you know, when you mm. aren't putting the same amount of money that you were, or in fact, you're putting the exact same number uh, as you were 40 years ago, you know, money changes so much and the world changes so much in 40 years that putting the same amount of money up 40 years later is absolutely not the same. Mm. Um and especially as things cost more, 
to put less money on it does not mean that it's you know it's they're they're really restricting themselves with the budget they were were putting on these things if if the rescuers had a budget of 70 million who knows what it would have looked like you know it could have been the most beautiful thing ever made uh mm. but the the fact of the matter is it, it they still weren't putting a lot of money into it and i think this is kind of the point where they started changing that because they put a lot of money into some of the later ones and i mean the most expensive one of the most expensive movies ever made period is tangled which i think was 265 million just to think like 30 years down the road (laughs) they went from seven to 265 million kind of shows what the next couple of decades in disney animation did and how much that changed in the acquisition of pixar and and, Mm -hmm. eventually marvel and all the other things that now have turned this company into perhaps the world's biggest or not the world's biggest company but one of the biggest entertainment companies in the world if not the biggest Mm. um kind of speaks to how much things change so it'll be interesting to go through the next dozen or so films and more i think there's like well tangled is number 50 so we've got 27 more to go before we get there so we got a long (laughs) way to go but it'll be interesting to kind of see how things slowly change and and there's a couple films along the way that almost bankrupt them one in particular hello black cauldron um (laughs) and then there's others that kind of really reinvigorate and and really give them a staggering amount of money to work with Mm. um so it's it'd be interesting to see that journey but this is we're getting close to the end of the really low budget ones because the the although the eighties are the eighties are a weird the eighties are one of the strangest decades uh, in yeah. Disney. So I think it'll be fun to to get into them. But this is kind of the you know this is another kind of changing of the guard and, and as a result you get I guess you just it just doesn't work that well. But people mm. love this movie and it it did really really well at the time. So there must be something there. Um, yeah. I really I love the contemporary setting. I love the opening. I think all the like UN stuff is really cool. By the way, it is the most diverse Disney has ever been and probably <laughs> ever will be uh, because you get every kind of person and they're all represented, I think, quite authentically and beautifully, which is really nice. And then, of course, it all turns to mice, which, you know, then they're basically a global conglomerate of mice, which is quite fun. Um, <laughs> and I really like the the opening and, and the way they set everything up. Mm. Uh, and then it turns into this story of these two mice saving a girl who's been taken by, uh, what did I write? Bland Deville. <laughs> uh, yeah, which is interesting because we were we were talking uh, there. Essentially, when they were first creating this movie, there's, there's some interesting more stuff that will will spill in throughout. Because I think it, it's more interesting to talk about when we're talking about stuff specifically. So when let's let's talk a bit about um, Bland Deville, aka Madame Medusa. Uh, yeah. And I say Blandeville because they originally had conceived the idea to bring back Cruella Deville for this story, uh, which is interesting because this is set in New York and, and uh, 101 Dalmatians is set in London. But apparently maybe maybe she's a globetrotter and she started a new life in uh, in New York. But anyway, they decided that was uh, not the, the right move. They didn't think it would be believable because I guess when you're looking at two mice traveling across America to save a young girl, uh, believability is your number one factor (laughs) (laughs) but yeah they they did go against it but it's not surprising then that madame medusa feels very much like a cruella deville ripoff kind of like cruella deville version like Mm 0.2 just like not there but kind of very much attempting to be even to the point where i swear they have the same car Mm. and they both drive terribly there's actually quite a few jokes about women driving badly in this film which i guess is not surprising um but yeah it's it, it's interesting because there's also a joke that bianca makes that she always runs red lights um <laughs> but yeah it's it's she's disappointing i think mm. and i think you use the word bargain bin and i think that's also a very <laughs> good way of putting it like 
she looks worse than Cruella. She, but she, it's the same kind of like manic energy and yeah. lanky kind of profile. Um, they both smoke. You know, they both are very determined to get one thing. Cruella wants a coat. Uh, Medusa wants a diamond. And I think, to be fair, the diamond makes more sense than the coat. Because uh, mm-hmm. I think you can, you know, considering Cruella lived in a dilapidated mansion, now, you would think she would want something that would get you more money than a dog coat, but she only cared about vanity. So it made sense for her. Um, but, you know, Madame Medusa, we don't really know why. I mean, money, obviously. But, you know, there's no... There's no work done into, like, why Madame Medusa would want all the... Like, is she trying to build something specifically? Is she trying to get a better... Like, who knows, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know what she wants his money for except to be rich, which, I, you know, everyone wants to be rich, I guess, but the, it, it lacks that kind of extra thing to make you care about why, why she's doing this. Yeah, I had real issues with the villain in this and you know if you've listened to any episode of this podcast just pick anyone at random uh we will probably talk about how much we love the villains on it because quite often the villains are are more interesting than the protagonists and there are so many films where that is the case but that's it helps it helps that we're both fundamentally evil yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) um yeah but in this absolutely not the case and they set up the villain in this in a really interesting way as well where the film opens with we kind of get like a like a cold opening which we don't really see in any other disney films where it opens with a short scene or like a prologue before we then kind of get the opening credits and in this scene we see that uh penny has you know she's on a she's on a boat she sends off a note uh sort of calling for calling for help um but then it's not really explained what happened. So I think very, very briefly when kind of uh, Bianca and Bernard are investigating, they find out that that, that Medusa, she's like the owner of like a, a pawn shop or something. Mm-hmm. And I I can't actually remember what happened or how she kind of came came to kidnap i guess penny and how that whole thing went down but they well they they just like they have her already like they don't yeah they don't really establish why penny she keeps referring to herself as anti medusa I, I i don't know if again it's the film doesn't care to mm. give you enough detail to care so like i don't know if it's actually her aunt and that's how they like and that's how penny went with her because you know she convinced her to to come along rufus the old cat who's an angel Mm-hmm. Um, he kind of says that like uh, 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 some trashy he, he uses the word trashy and he's not wrong um, people <laughs> like approached her but he was like oh she would never go with them though but obviously she did whether she was kidnapped or she, she went with them because she thought they were going to be her parents I, I don't know they don't make that clear I think that would have given them an extra dimension of evil though and made them a lot more interesting if like they fully posed I think if you had a scene that like showed them like fully posing um, kind of like an Annie you know mm. how they kind of like fully pose to be like these wonderful parents, but really they're just after the money and they just want like some hands to go get a diamond. So why it's her, why she's kidnapped, how she was kidnapped is all kind of left um, unknown, which I think is not the best move. Yeah, the the revealing of that information kind of happens in the wrong order as well, because I spent so much of the film being like, why Penny? Why this particular girl? And it's basically because where the diamond is, is quite confined and quite small. So they need a small child to kind of fit down the gap to go and get the diamond basically. Yeah. But it, it 
you're right it like it left that kind of major part of it unexplained and i think like you said that would have added a whole extra layer to their you know to their evilness if they had of pretended to be you know adoptive parents and then and then kind of snatch penny away for this uh this mission or whatever they had for her but it it does it in such a strange way that we kind of immediately see in the beginning that this child is in trouble and then obviously it sets up the uh rescue aid society which is the little organization that the mice have to go yep. and rescue children we presume or people who need help um and that's how we kind of you know, the plot begins really is that they are tasked with finding this finding this girl um and in many ways it works like a detective story it's kind of a detective adventure story type thing where they piece together the clues and then they eventually find their way to to penny and and bring her back home but it just a real missed opportunity i feel in the way this villain is portrayed and yes you know we've made the jokes about her being like a bargain bin cruella or a budget cruella poor man's cruella you know pick your <laughs> pick your phrase they're all right yeah <laughs> but she she's just kind of nothing really and she's not i guess um, you know wanting to to steal this massive diamond and using a small child to get it is pretty evil but she never really felt like a huge threat to me i don't know if that was no, just i think that was just no. me or yeah you're right i i think that's because they don't really spend any time with her. I mean, mm. you know, they, they she gets a couple scenes uh, to herself when she's, like, on the phone or whatever. But you, you, in this one time, she uses, like, a gun to shoot at, um, I actually can't remember, crocodile? No, it's not the crocodile. She likes the crocodile. <laughs> she sh- shoots at the mice because the mice, she, she sees the mice and she doesn't like She's terrified of mice. Mm. So she, you know, whips out a gun and starts shooting at them, but she can't hit the mice and... That's like kind of scary because gun violence isn't super common in Disney. You know, they removed Make My Music because there's some gun violence <laughs> at the beginning. Um, justice for Make My Music, release it to the people. <laughs> um, but you know, it it it's weird. It's it's she never really. I don't know. I think you're right. She doesn't very come. She comes across as mean and like nasty, but I don't know if she ever comes across as like vicious and evil and that she could potentially get away with it. Like Maleficent, you're like she could do this. Cruella, mm. you're like she could definitely kill these puppies. You know, you know she won't because it's a Disney movie, and you know that they're not going to get away with it, and they're not going to murder 101 puppies. But they they do a good enough job, or a great enough job, even establishing those kind of villains to make it feel like they could be victorious. And a lot of the times they get they you know don't they don't get punished and they don't get killed. Uh, mm-hmm. So you know, Cruella doesn't die, so she could do it. Medusa, I think, potentially gets eaten by the Gators, but it's I don't they don't. It's left up to interpretation. Yeah, like so much of this film, I think, where it just doesn't really explain things and again it kind of it it makes me feel like there were many hands trying to kind of like make this work and when there's too much involvement from too many people that's when things start not making sense so even even with the plot you know you have this idea of these uh two mice who work like detectives and they go off and you know to to rescue people who are lost that's up that's absolutely fine on its own and you know whatever peril this child you know a child or or someone is in they will do what it takes to to rescue them and bring them home but what the in how this film kind of like frames that it basically just turns penny into 
a plot device and she is a good character and she has agency and we'll we'll get into the you know how this film is actually quite progressive in terms of its characters a bit later on but do you you see what i'm saying like that you know she Mm -hmm. she serves the serves the purpose of just being you know she's the thing that they have to go and rescue therefore uh you know a, a tenuous connection is made with the villain and a diamond and that whole thing just to kind of make something that happen yeah make something happen and make something kind of vaguely fit together and i was reading actually about um i don't know if it was the original story or perhaps kind of like early drafts of the story but i think they wanted it to be a bit more political or that it was like uh I yeah think well, it... that's, that's what i was saying at the the original book mm. is, is quite you know it's like a poet who's captured by this like authoritarian or to- sorry totalitarian kind of government in like a siberian aka russia you know it's kind of like a critique on 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 russia and, and total- totalitarian what a word politics <laughs> and, and stuff like that and authoritarianism and fa- fascism and all that and and you know mm, walt yeah. was not big on making political statements uh, in his films, so they they kind of shelved it. So it definitely did have pretty heavy political undertones. And how can you not? I mean, it starts with the UN. Mm. Yeah, I almost prefer that version. I know it probably wouldn't. I think be... it'd be really cool. Yeah, I know it wouldn't be very like child friendly, but I would want to watch that. I would want to watch that version because, you know, I think we've had that a lot. There've been quite a few examples, like the Jungle Book ending, for example. There's yeah. quite a few where like the um peter pan was supposed to be way dark i mean peter pan's pretty dark and so it's alice in wonderland but they were both supposed to be way darker mm. um you know there's there's quite a few where i'd love to see like an alternate cut and not that they ever ended up making them but if you know cause how expensive animation is but i'd love to see some alternate versions of of quite a few of these and i think this is a good example of another one that i'd like to see another take on it which is interesting because they do get another take on it um, because 13 years later in in 1990 we get uh the rescuers down under it is mm. the only uh, to this point, anyway, there's now a couple because there's Frozen Two and Wreck It Ralph Two, um, but you know, to this point, this was the only one uh, that had a a proper sequel, and by proper, I mean made by the same Walt Disney Animation Studio. Mm. Uh, quite a few of them have like Toon Disney sequels that were straight to DVD, or some were even theatrical, but not made by the like hallowed studio, if you will. So this mm. is the only one uh, for a long time that uh, that actually had a a proper sequel. Yeah, I mean, it just goes to show like how popular it was to warrant a sequel and there's a fair gap like you said between the films as well and uh weirdly as i mentioned last week i have seen the second one uh, i just hadn't <laughs> i hadn't seen this yeah. one and, and we'll, we'll we'll go into whether we like it or not and when we get to that one because it's 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 i actually i think i remember it being better um, yeah but i guess i guess we'll see yeah my very vague recollection of rescuers down under which i have probably not watched for about 20 years um is that it's better than this um <laughs> but then this being very fresh in my mind i'm kind of like anything's better than this <laughs> yeah you know one one thing i will say because we have been complaining about or i should say i have been because you have too but i've really they've really pissed me off the accents um and i i, I think they finally got somewhere uh, yeah because you know when they go down to the to the bayou um I guess they're in Louisiana, so they did kind of listen to me when I said the Aristocat should be in New Orleans. They put this in Louisiana instead. Um, you know, they sound like they are from the South, whether it's a specific Louisiana accent, or they don't really say Louisiana, but Bayou, you have to assume they are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're somewhere in the Southern United States, and they sound like they're from somewhere in the Southern United States, and I'll take it. Mm. I'll take whatever I can get. Bernard sounds like he's from New York. Um, uh, Bianca sounds like she's from Hungary, and, and she's supposed to be. It all makes sense. 
Yeah. Uh, I very much appreciate that. Uh, so thank you, Disney, mm. uh, for finally hearing my... Obviously, they just made this and they listened to everything I said. <laughs> uh, and that we said and we shaped this film. Um, mm. Not that I want... I don't, I don't actually want credit for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, we... You know, um, they finally have done some accents that actually make sense. Maybe because they didn't cast Phil Harris for the fifth time, although he was supposed to appear as there was supposed to be, you know, with those like country critters, there was supposed to be kind of like a country band part of it mm. in the, like in their original concepts. And he was supposed to like sing. So we were yeah. supposed to get more Phil Harris, but we did not. Yeah. I was, I was reading that as well. I was like, wow, they really loved that guy <laughs> and they wanted him to be in everything. Um, Ironically, actually the, b- before I forget the country critters, um, or as I call them, cause I don't remember any of their names. <laughs> uh, the, the owl, uh, whose name is Owl, is voiced by the person who did Piglet, which is funny because Piglet is now voicing Owl, who is also a Winnie the Pooh character. Obviously, it's a different Owl, but I, I did find that funny. I don't think um, the Owl in Winnie the Pooh would shove a stick of dynamite into someone's gun, but, no. you know, I thought it was fun <laughs> that Piglet voiced Owl this time. I did pick up on that, actually. I was like, that voice sounds very familiar, and I think it's because <laughs> I just heard it. So <laughs> um, We also get um, a couple of returning... Uh, Disney voices whilst we're talking about the country critters. Um, Pat Buttram and uh, mm-hmm. George Lindsay as well, I believe, voice uh, two of those. So Pat Buttram, who we had in Aristocats, um, was kind of partnered with George Lindsay as the the two dogs who try yeah. to take down Edgar and they both return in this. And um, Pat Buttram getting more of a role. Uh, he's Luke, who basically just spends most of the film drinking and drinking. being being <laughs> drinking and being told off by Ellie Mae, who we love. Um but yeah, so a couple of sort of well known, you know, Disney voices that kind of crop up in these mm-hmm. smaller roles, which is always it's always nice to hear. Um yeah, so you were you were saying about that uh in terms of what Disney has done with the accents in this and how it actually feels like a step forward and I was absolutely delighted when uh little Bianca walked in and took her place behind the thing on the table that said hungry i was like i know she's from hungry as in the actress this makes sense this makes sense thank you (laughs) disney um but also uh something else that disney have listened uh to us on clearly is giving us some more progressive female characters so you know i'm ready to talk about this one because we have had uh problems (laughs) let's say with some of the representation of female characters or... and we're gonna get we're gonna get a lot more problems yes this is you know this, but this is this is a nice respite tell us more yeah no <laughs> not the end of the problems but also not the end of uh good progressive female characters it's a real mixed bag here on out um but yes yeah, so we uh we get who do we get let me look at my list here sorry uh so yeah miss bianca obviously is one of the the main characters and she in a way that surprises the characters and us i suppose as the audience she very much takes the lead in volunteering uh for the mission right at the start of the film she's the first one to put up her hand and say that she wants to go and rescue uh penny and then she uh is she chooses who she wants to go with as well so she's very much in charge of the situation um and there's a <laughs> a nice kind of comment as well from like the the head or the chair of the RAS and who acknowledges that the times have changed and moved on. And I, I thought that was going to be a moment where they were going to be like, well, a woman doing a thing, but it actually, it was like the character actually acknowledging what, you know, well, yes, we're in 
we're in different times now. I can't remember the exact quote, but it was something along those lines. Yeah. So I really liked that. And even the characters that we don't like so much, you know, such as uh, Madame Medusa, she's also easily the most dominant and the most vindictive of the villain pair because we get our villain sidekick as well in Mr. Snoops. Um mm-hmm. And also some great kind of secondary female characters as well. So we, we spoke about Penny as well. Who yeah, I think Penny's actually pretty great. Yeah. Who, like I was expecting just this like whiny. whiny. Yep. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you know, help me. I'm a, I'm a. Just like uh, a cry baby. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like I'm a, I'm a child who can't fend for themselves, but actually, you know, she tries to escape. She very much like holds her own. Um, and also Ellie May as well, who absolutely runs the roost over Luke and spends a lot of time whacking him over the head with a rolling pin, which I loved. <laughs> yeah, they be- because it is Disney, though, they can't help themselves. They have to have little digs <laughs> at, at, at yeah. little Bianca um, because, well, it, it's also like established in the UN thing when they're like, who wants to team up with her? That they're all very interested because she's beautiful and for no other reason, mm. um, which is on the men. That's not her fault. Um, but there's, you know, she's got her, her joke about running the red lights. She's got her, when they're at the airport, she's like lagging behind because she just had to pack lots of things because she's a woman and she can't help herself. Apparently that's how brains work, I guess, according to Disney. Um, and then when they're like buckling up in the Albatross Orville, um, she doesn't want to pull it too tight because it might like wrinkle her, you know, coat. So, you know, it's not perfect. Mm. Um, they have, they can't, they just can't help themselves. But you're, I think what you're saying is very true in that they're, this is kind of a, I feel like the seventies in general was kind of a, a nice subtle way of, of doing some some good things to your female characters. I think there's some like I think Duchess is a really good one. Mm. Um and I think there's 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 a couple and it's nice to see it starting to happen. Um it takes a while for it to it takes like another like thirty years before it's like relatively consistent. Um <laughs> and even then you can still argue it's got plenty of issues, but you know, they're 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 getting there. I mean this is a uh you know, as a, a company whose films are founded very strongly on very traditional beliefs and, and feelings and, and modes of existence, so it's not uh, it's not surprising. Hmm. But it's nice to see them taking more of a risk, if you will, and hmm. uh, and challenging those ideas a little. And I think we definitely get that here. Yeah, I I think as well one of the things that I found most refreshing and it kind of builds on what we saw in Aristocats as well which was the relationship between Duchess and uh, Thomas O'Malley which for the majority of the film there isn't the suggestion that you know they they should be married or that that will be the outcome or whatever and then there's a couple of again they can't help themselves we talked about the lines where they sort of say oh you know we almost had a father or when Madame at the end says you know it'd be nice to have a man around the house and and you know they 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 get their <laughs> they get their moment in there um but their relationship felt and we we spoke about this at the time their relationship felt quite progressive in terms of you know it was clear that they liked each other and we saw kind of flirtation and the early stages of like a blossoming relationship um and we get that to an extent in this it sort of feels very much like there there isn't really that open flirting or even like the suggestions of romance but um the two characters the two mice they have a closeness and a clear fondness for each other um mm-hmm. but there's no there's never a suggestion unless i miss something in which case well screen it's actually but... it's I, I i actually completely agree with you but it's interesting you say that because 
the original plan was to have them married. Mm. Um, and they thought it would actually be feel more romantic if they kind of started out as, as like partners or whatever and then became romantically entwined. Mm-hmm. Uh, or it would be more romantic to, to have them not marry. Um, which I don't think comes across at all. Um, so I, I agree with you. I, I don't think it's... I think it's it's a pretty platonic. I mean, yeah, he's attracted to her for sure. And I think mm-hmm. she is too. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's I think that's established. But, you know, they, uh, she kisses him once and then like it totally calms him down on the plane ride. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't remember... Do they kiss at the end? I don't think they do. I don't think so, yeah. And it doesn't kind of end with that. It just that, sets like... up the next like adventure that happened 13 years later, apparently. Well, yeah. They go, they go, actually, th- actually, uh, you know, I just thought they basically end up in like Siberia. So maybe that was their kind of nod to mm. the original story because they, they end up in like a st- loads of snow and like they're wearing like heavy jackets and stuff like that. So maybe that's their, that was their little like wink, wink, nudge, nudge way of yeah. tying it in with the original rescuer story. Mm, that's a very good point actually yeah and it's yeah it doesn't really end with that like big romantic moment they don't sort of like run off to get married they like you said you know they go off on their next adventure and it's you know obviously knowing that a sequel comes along in a few years there is just that sense that these you know two characters they do like each other maybe they marry maybe they don't that's not important and it's certainly not established in this film but they are you know a partnership and they that that's what they do they go around and they and they help people when they kind of like solve solve these mysteries and whatever and it doesn't i i like that it doesn't feel the need to have that kind of tokenistic romance like a box tick it's not like you know that there's moments that feel romantic and like we said they obviously have a fondness for each other but it's not it's not like we see in other disney films where it's like and they lived happily ever after and we have yeah, that they're big not really moment. pushing that romance i don't, I don't think mm. Which I, I I liked and appreciated, and I think that was one of the things that we particularly enjoyed about um, Aristocats. So it was nice to kind of see a development on that, and I think less kind of stuff that, like we talked about with the Aristocats, you know, the the where they just couldn't help themselves, and they kind of like threw in some comments about him being the man about the house and that sort of thing, like. Yeah, we mentioned the things about, you know, Bianca that they, they you know, they got in just a couple of digs at women, but they... They just don't know how to not do it. They, like, yeah. they do not know what it means to just not have them. I can't <laughs> I can't wait for the film where there's none of that. And I have a horrible feeling it doesn't happen until Moana. <laughs> Does it ever happen? We'll see. Well, because Moana's like the only person. Yeah, happens. she has no <laughs> romantic... So no one else can say stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's several steps in the right direction, I think. Definitely, absolutely. Yeah, even if it's considering where we were with like Sleeping Beauty, who's asleep the whole time. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're getting somewhere. Yeah, and also has no agency whatsoever. And in this, we we have Barely characters. Barely says anything. <laughs> we have characters in this who do have agency, and I'd be willing to bet actually that the female characters in this speak more than the male characters. Um, I've not. I would think so. Sat down and worked that out, but yeah. There's definitely well, there's definitely more females too, which is also rare. Mm. Um, you know, you get Bianca, you get Ellie Mae, you get Penny, you get the villain, all female. Yeah. Um, which is which is nice. Um, I will say, um, Orville very much strikes me as um a bad version of Scuttle, and I know they're different birds. Mm. Um, but I I did wrote um I did write Orville flew so Scuttle could soar. <laughs> I love that. Also, this isn't the it's a different so, bird in the Rescuers Down Under, right? 
I think. Um, yes. So because the voice actor of um, Orville passed away, um, it's John Candy, and he is um, Orville's brother. I right. can't remember what his name in the movie is. But yeah, it, it, so it's also an albatross. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's, it is a different albatross. And I I just assumed he was a seagull for a while uh, because mm. he looks a lot like Scuttle, I, I felt. Uh, yeah. Obviously, obviously Scuttle is 12 years later, and Orville is the OG. Um, but, you know, he stumbled, so Scuttle could be the one. Um, I'm, a, I'm a big Scuttle fan. Um, should we talk about, speaking of being fans of characters, should yes. we talk about who we stand this week? Yes, we should. And we haven't uh, agreed this prior to recording. We do. So... We do oh, okay, fantastic. <laughs> I, my absolute favourite character in this is one who does not talk at all. Not but... a word. <laughs> Boy, does he make an impact. And that is uh, Evan Rude, who I believe is a dragonfly. Um, yes. And his little... Little Evan Rude and his beautiful little boat as little boat i just it was just a leaf <laughs> i loved this character so much i was so amused by him and i think that this just really speaks to what disney are able to do when they don't do too much like we we know what this character is is feeling and that comes across in the sound and we hear him sort of when he's like slowing down and when he's really kind of like motoring along um we we get that sense the whole time of like what this character is feeling but he doesn't say anything so a real credit to the sound work and the sound effects that are used um for that character um i there he does have a voice actor i can't remember the name but um i remember seeing it in the credits and was like huh, it wasn't just someone making squeaky noises um but yeah i loved him i loved his design i thought he was like really cute and colorful i liked how he had like a little mustache um and he was the hero. And I don't think they would have succeeded in their mission to rescue Penny if it wasn't for Evan Rude. Absolutely agreed. There's also a really nice bit where he's he's driving them through and, and they're like, oh, I can't see anything in the fog. And it turns out Penny and the gators are like right next to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because of the fog, they can't see it. I think that's one of the unfortunately few moments of a really nice animation in there. Um, but I think actually all the stuff with Ivanhoe looks really great. Because um, mm. like I was saying, I think they really excelled. Maybe they were some of their favorite moments in the in in working at, entirely because of the water sequences. I think a lot of the stuff with water looks really good, mm. uh, great even. And it, this is one of the examples of that. He looks really good. How two mice can fit in a leaf without it like breaking, I do not know. <laughs> I do not care either because it was delightful. And you know he's a, he's a little trooper. And he got mm-hmm. really tired, but he still pulled it through and, and made it all happen. And without him, the other critters would not have come. And, and they probably wouldn't have gotten away with it or gotten away with it like they did something bad. They probably wouldn't have freed Penny. <laughs> yeah. He definitely played. Who, it's role. worth noting that does try to free herself on multiple occasions and is, is quite plucky and quite strong. And, you know, mm-hmm. she doesn't really take much from Medusa. I think that's another one of the reasons that Medusa doesn't come across as that threatening is that Penny isn't very threatened by her, I don't think. She doesn't like going to the dark hole to find the diamond, but generally speaking, like she she talks back to her. You know, she's not terrified of her. Mm. Yeah, none of the characters really seem that afraid of her, and even you know, there's the In fact, thing they make fun of her more than they're afraid of her. Yeah, and the thing with the mice <laughs> as well, like she is scared of the mice. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I think that that I think maybe that's why they have the characters of the alligators who kind of serve as her henchmen almost. So they're like the muscle and she, I guess, is the brains behind it. But even they aren't particularly menacing. And actually, I did really enjoy the scene where the mice are in the organ 
and the alligators I are <laughs> playing yeah. the organ um and they're kind of like shooting out of the top and the other alligator is like waiting there to try and catch them and it's just a really funny sequence that i it kind of just injected that bit of life into the film at the moment where i was starting to lose patience with it a little bit and this is not a long film either it's what hour 18 i think um yeah so it's it's pretty short and it's kind of sitting around that you know length that we've seen for so many of the the films and i can't remember on what episode it might have even been last week but we were praising you know films that are so short and how they are able to get so much done in that time but this really feels lacking in plot and i think it's it certainly does pick up from i think from the moment they get on evan rude's leaf boat onwards i think the film is quite exciting then yeah i agree i think it's interesting that you say that because i actually think compared to the last few that we've seen this is the most plot one Mm. uh you know winnie the pooh barely has one robin hood does not and uh the aristocrat doesn't really either so Mm. you know this is i think this is the most plot structured film of the 1970s that doesn't necessarily mean it has a very good one or a very strong one Mm. um but it it, it is definitely the most uh because you know like they're like like i was saying this is their attempt at kind of returning to that heartfelt um adventure story that Mm. they haven't really been doing because they've been kind of going all in on on comedy and comedic aspects of the movies and highlighting those over story or anything else and really focusing on like developing characters and kind of character driven pieces rather than story driven pieces and this is the first one in a long time really uh Mm. that's trying to go back to that traditional route i don't know if it does it that successfully um i i can't i actually i actually don't think i was that bored during this i was just it never really there's that organ scene that i really liked i'm glad you mentioned it because i honestly i did forget um <laughs> and there's the really great sequence um where penny's like getting the diamond with the the sword and it's mm. really intense and there's a few fun moments here and there and i like the opening with the un but overall i don't know it just there wasn't really like a wow moment for me mm. at any point there's a, there was a few like oh i like this you know i i the movie is to me fine it is yeah. okay Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, on like a star scale, I guess if that's like a solid two and a half out of five, it is fine. It is m- right in the middle of that road. Mm. Um, it is just, it's there. It's doing its thing. It does it fairly well sometimes. It does it less well at other points. Um, but yeah, it just doesn't, it's okay. It'll, mm. It will do. You <laughs> know, it's a, it, it, it'll pass the time well enough. It, it's not like to me, something like Robin Hood, where I'm like, will this ever end? Yeah. Um, it didn't, I didn't, I didn't have that with with the rescuers but i didn't there was i i was never like this is really good or like this is wow like i can't i want to watch this again at some point which i've Mm. had with a lot of the ones we've watched like there's at least something about most of the ones that we've seen so far where i'm like yeah this is well at least from the first few decades where i'm like yeah this is really exciting and really different and unique and special and i can see why it's endured after all these years Mm. um but i'm kind of surprised this one was so successful but i guess i'm also not really because you know, this the seventies were kind of like the birth of the blockbuster and, and, and cinema audiences were humongous. So I, I'm not surprised that a lot of people saw this movie. Mm. Um I am surprised that anywhere it grossed more money than the uh Star Wars. Um <laughs> I, I just didn't think that was really because Star Wars is still like top five or top ten like with the inflation, like all time box office. So I'm surprised it could win in any in any country. Mm. Um But yeah. yeah, I'm uh I was I was surprised, but I'm not really because it does have that international kind of flair, even though it is entirely set in the United States. Mm. 
Yeah, I, I, I can see the appeal, and I think as well it having that adventure storyline, like that in itself is quite appealing. And I don't think I was ever, I don't think I was ever really bored in it. I think I was, I just found myself frustrated, um, quite frequently, just because it. There were moments where that I, I felt the story just lulled a little bit, or, or even that I it agree. moved. Yeah, or even just that it moved like too quickly like i could have happily had like another couple of clues along the way that they you know they met some more characters and they and they pieced it together a little bit more because it it felt very it all slotted into place like almost too conveniently i think where you know very quickly they're kind of taking flight and they're off to where they know penny is um Mm -hmm. and we get some stuff along the way obviously they go to the orphanage they talk to rufus who we love um and then they go to the shop i believe and that's when they they find out that medusa has taken penny um yeah i could i could have definitely done with more setup and yeah one one of the other things is that the like con- i keep calling them country critters because i don't know any of their names like <laughs> besides ellie may and luke they feel really like tacked on at the end they're like mm. oh we need more animals to like appeal to children and so like let's throw a whole bunch of them in i would have i would not have minded seeing them at some do we see them at any other point until the end we don't do we am i crazy no but it's interesting that you say that you would well maybe like them to have a, a bigger part or be more or, established or just like a reason but... for being there yeah, I think, I don't know if this was in the story or just in an original draft. Again, I think this this changed hands a lot, this story. Um, but I think they were meant to be, like, because in, in this world, in this universe that the rescuers exist in, it's the animals who kind of operate to save the day. And we assume that there are, you know, police and army and humans who work and do these things as well detectives well, in and whatever fact, even penny was like didn't you bring someone bigger with you yeah <laughs> but yeah i think that what the country critters were originally intended were to be the kind of the country contingent or something like a like a neighborhood right. watch type of thing where they right. worked on a smaller scale to sort of keep their i would their neighborhood yeah me too i think even just like and it was quite. I think it'd be quite easily done as well because you just. It wouldn't. Yeah, it would not take much time. Yeah, you have them all meeting in in the house or something, and you know Ellie May or someone is is heading up that meeting and saying, you know, we've heard reports of a a girl that's been kidnapped or something, just to kind of establish that these other like smaller pockets of you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. rescuers exist in this in this universe. Yeah. I think that would. That then gives those characters a reason and a purpose, and it's not just kind of like a bunch of critters showing up at the end, yeah, with no real purpose. <laughs> that feels harsh. <laughs> no, but it's it's true. They they just they come out of nowhere. And, yeah, and I was like, oh, because I'm you know you see them, you see lots of people's names in the credits, and I was like, we, we're only really getting like a few characters here, and then all of a sudden there's like ten. Like, oh, okay, mm. there they are. Mm. <laughs> I guess that's where all those people's names were. Yeah. Um, Let's um. There's one. So there's an interesting thing in the rescuers, which is um in our I guess controversial slash problematic AF, and, and it's not to say that this film is because it isn't really. However, um, there's a weird little story. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> and it's because of their home video version. I don't know if it was ever confirmed that it was the the theatrical version. Uh, but in January 1999, Disney announced a recall of their at the time it would have been VHS. 
um, version of the rescuers because it contained what they said was a, and I quote, objectionable, objectionable background image. <laughs> um, and it happens when Bernard and Bianca are flying for the first time on the albatross and they're freaking out and they're going past all these windows in the city. And you can, this is confirmed, this is 100% true. This is not a wild conspiracy theory. It, it, it was there. Um, in two separate frames, and it, again, it's like a blink of an eye thing. You would have to pause at the most miraculous of times, especially with the VHS, uh, to be able to see it. Um, but there is a photographic, not like a cartoon, like a full-on photographic image of a topless woman. Uh, it appears in a couple different moments. I'm in the windows, and again, it's a real like you'd have to pause at the mm-hmm. like exact millisecond. It's like a blink of an eye. I watched like uh, the clip. It just like at normal speed a few times, and I, I could not see it at all. Um, but it, if you pause it, it is indeed there, um, which is basically confirmed by Disney as they recalled them. Uh, and there were 3.4 million copies of the video that they had sold at that point, so that was quite a journey. <laughs> um, but yeah, so at some point, why why it was there, I, I do not know. Mm. Um, I don't think they've ever confirmed uh, why it was there. They just said that you know it, it was, and they they did it to uh. They did the recall, and I quote, to keep our promise to families that we can trust and rely on the Disney brand to provide the finest in family entertainment. <laughs> um, which is fun, because it, it's just a literal <laughs> photographic image. It's not even a cartoon. It's a literal topless woman um, breasts fully visible in, yeah. in this window for like a fraction of a half a second. It's it's wild. Yeah, I... So weird. <laughs> when you told me about this, I... Like something in the back of my mind was like that sounds familiar because I I've like seen all these things where it's like you know, the bits that Disney didn't want you to yeah, see. Yeah, and, there's, and there's lots we'll be talking about. I think especially in the '90s, there's lots of things of whether it's hidden or whether it's real or not we can discuss. But this one it was was real. Yeah, I think that the the one that everyone knows about is Little Mermaid and an image on the I believe on the video or. A poster cover, but there's, or... there's more there's more in that i have seen with my own eyes while yeah. watching it so there, there is stuff we'll get there yeah. nasty <laughs> i cannot wait um yeah so i <laughs> i had to find uh i had to find the images i had to find the video clip and watch it for myself because i was like like you said is this just one of these like wild conspiracy things but no absolutely not it is there um you can watch the clip on youtube but i would say at normal speeds you will not be able to see it and Anyone who says they can, probably lying, or you have very good eyesight. Because um, I had to pause it, I had to watch yeah, it in no, like... I don't think there's any way. <laughs> yeah, I had to watch it in like we, slow motion. We, though, because we're disgusting. We're like, we need to see it. <laughs> yeah, um, I really hope no one checks my uh, Google search history, because the thing that I had to search... Talk this lady in the rescuer. <laughs> no, it wasn't even that, because I didn't know, I didn't know, what, to, I didn't know what to put in. So I just put in like the rescuers naked and then I was like, if this gives me some like fan art of these lovely little mice. <laughs> with... There's no turning back from that point. You don't I... need that. No, fortunately, the very first thing that it came up was the thing, the thing that I wanted. So that is a risky Google. Uh, do not do it at work. Do not do it if your parents are around or, you know, just. <laughs> <laughs> So there's there's a there's a fact checking website called Snopes S N O P E S. There's an article on there that tells you all you need to know. It's quite fascinating. Yeah. Um. And uh, it is indeed true. It is indeed real. But anyway, that's enough. We don't we don't need to talk about 
nudity <laughs> in the rescuers anymore. Uh, and it was it was not in the theatrical version. Apparently, it was not in the 1992 home video release. Just in like the 99 video release. Why? So wild. Who knows? They say it was a different print that they used. Why it was ever there at all? Who knows? Maybe it was the animators. Maybe maybe it was the Nile Men. They're like, look, this is our last <laughs> one. Let's mess with these people a little bit. Yeah. Who knows? I don't. I mean, I don't think they were around by the time the 90s print would have been up. But who knows? Who knows who did it? No one will ever know. I think Except so. the person who did it. Shout out to that person if you're listening. Yeah. That was. I mean, it's a weird thing to do. I'm not sure <laughs> if I approve, uh, but I am amused. Yeah. If you are that person. Um, come on that come on the podcast please like yeah or contact us anonymously and <laughs> i just want to i just want to know how you did it i just want to talk <laughs> yeah I just, we've got questions um i yeah in my head i'm like it was either someone who had like just got fired and was leaving and they were doing that thing where it's like i don't i'm not employed anymore it doesn't matter what i do and they just like mm-hmm. snuck something in or like someone did it as a dare like oh i bet you can't get a you know topless image into a disney film and then they were like better can <laughs> yeah now that person is filthy rich probably um <laughs> <laughs> yeah one of those one of those fun little things and um yeah speaking of actually there's um well a, a, an easter egg that i feel like we talk about a lot uh with all of these films uh we have spoken about our theory that um this character is uh like a watchman type figure <laughs> the stanley of the disney universe but we get a we get a not just a bambi's mum appearance we get bambi's mum and bambi uh make an appearance in this one uh did you spot them i'm presuming you did i did not <gasps> where where oh my gosh um now there's a question. I just wrote down Bambi's mum and Bambi Claxon, and then <laughs> just hoped that you would also spot it. No, um, I, did, I did. I did not see it this time. I was really surprised when you said. Well, and I I swear because you told me before I watched it. And I swear I was looking for it, but I I did. I must have zoned out into like why won't this movie end? Um, think... Or actually, I didn't really think that. I did think why do the backgrounds look like this? So I couldn't focus. It's too angry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't remember exactly when i think it's there maybe where they're showing like some scenery of like the the bayou so maybe it's as they're kind of like flying in or they're just showing some kind of establishing shots of that setting it doesn't i don't know if deer exist in the bayou um so i i don't know if that makes logical sense but also mice rescuing people does that make logical sense um but yeah she uh, I just I just had a look yeah it's it's an image of them they're in they're in like the bayou at night yeah. and you can see them like just in front of the water yeah they are they are there and wow, apparently yeah apparently so subtle this time that you <laughs> didn't spot no, them I didn't I didn't see it at all That's weird. Uh... I feel like I saw this image I just didn't like clock that it was wow okay <laughs> I don't want to watch it again to find out but I'm kind of tempted yeah just just that bit you can just pause it and then be like oh yeah there they are and then just carry okay. on with your day yeah exactly um let's let's get on to our themes i think we're sort of heading heading that way um we're on the way out <laughs> yeah <laughs> we get i would say most of them here uh do you want to yeah. take us through those yeah um so sidekicks um i guess orville counts as a well there's quite a few you could argue are sidekicks mm. especially because the the again our definition of sidekick is like a character who exists more or less for the sole purpose of advancing the main character's journey um and you can say that about a lot of these people mm-hmm. um and it's also hard to kind of pin down who the main character is i'm guessing it's some sort of trio of penny be it bernard and bianca those are the three i would consider like the main characters of this um so orville certainly exists for that 
the country critters who again i i don't know if they i mean i know one's name is owl so i don't know if they're all just named like turtle rabbit owl whatever um but the, the country critters their only thing that they do is help them they do nothing else um and then the villain uh, medusa has has is it snoops yeah yeah is that his name mr snoops mr snoops yes <laughs> my apologies to <laughs> mr snoops. sir snoops um and then the the two alligators or crocodiles, I can't remember which they are, but what are their names are Brutus and Nero? Yeah. Um so she has a whole host of, of sidekicks. Um, which is always nice. It's I think we're kind of in the era now where like every villain will have a sidekick at mm, some point. Yeah. Um and definitely some of the most famous villain sidekicks of all are are, are in the nineties. So mm. looking forward to that. Um, the man in nature, you know, it's, it's, it's again, another kind of man interact or women or young girl in this case, interacting with, with nature and, and animals and the kind of harmonious relationship between the two. And also sometimes negative because the crocodiles, you know, are used to kind of help keep her captured. Um, so kind of that, it's an interesting balance, I think, in this of kind of man working against nature and man working with nature at the same time and, and how we can have both in the same world. Mm. Um, Disney death we don't have, uh, but the most interesting one I think is the absence of a parent because Penny is a, an established orphan. You know, she comes, she's from an orphanage and this is one of two examples I can think of in Disney. And maybe there's been another one that I've forgotten, but this is the only one besides Tangled where someone gains a parent or parents by the mm. end of the film. Now, there might be a couple more that we're going to watch, but I don't think it's happened yet. And considering it's so common for um, parents to either not be there at all or to die in Disney films, it is surprising uh, to see one end with someone actually gaining parents because she gets adopted at the end and she becomes part of a family. Mm. I'm thinking now. I'm uh, like, I mean, there's there's definitely ones where even like recently Aristocats where they had one parent and then by the end they kind of get like a father figure in a Thomas quad, O'Malley. Yeah, a quad, yeah, but, not, but not like a, but that, actually that's a good example because that's close, but it's not mm. like a, you know, like Mowgli, we don't know if he gets, he just goes off to the man village. We don't know if he gets parents or anything like that or if parents are reunited. We have no idea. Mm. Um, Tangled is, is the only one I can think of off the top of my head anyway, where, where Rapunzel is fully like reunited with the parents. She wasn't aware that she had. Yeah. Um, hmm. But yeah, I'm, I'm, it's 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 certainly unique. There aren't there are uh, well two that we can think of of the fifty eight. There might be more. We'll have we'll have to. Well, I guess we'll keep looking at we keep looking at parents in the Disney film. So we'll hmm. we'll see if it comes up again. Maybe in one of the eighties ones that I have vague memories <laughs> of, but I don't think so. Uh, but yeah, that's the that was an interesting thing I I I thought of because it's it's not normal. For, yeah. for Disney films especially. It's it's a rare thing I guess in films anyway to like find a family but because usually you're a part of one already but it's interesting for Disney especially where it's so key to Disney is not having parents or parents not being around or parents dying at some point that they actually mm. gain parents at the end. Yeah and not even like we've spoken a lot about like surrogate parents or parent figures like they adopt her like they become her they become her parents and same entangled yeah. as well you know they are her, her birth parents and she is reunited with them basically you know having been snatched away from them as a baby mm-hmm. so yeah there's yeah I, it'll be interesting to see if if that happens again or how that kind of theme changes across the across the disney films i think that we have i mean we're entering into the where i 
I haven't seen all of the films. Um, but I can't remember when we next get a Disney death. And this is when you're going to yell at me and be like, there's literally one in the next film. But <laughs> um, I can't remember if Fox and the Hound had one. Mm. It seems like a kind of sad movie that would. I know the ending is devastating, but I don't <laughs> think it. I don't think it's because of a Disney death. I think there's quite a few. I think quite a few in the nineties. I know. Mm. I know one in particular definitely has one. Uh, yeah. Okay. But uh, I think it's. And and again in the in the in the it happens in um in Frozen and Big Hero Six and quite a few in the the last decade as well. So it, mm. it definitely. It definitely comes back, but I think it, it is it is taking a reasonable vacation. Yeah, um, yeah. And I I look forward to seeing when it returns because I, I I honestly I, off the top of my head I I do not remember. Mm, I think at some point when I've got a lot of time on my hands, which I guess is now because you know because uh, <laughs> everything that's happening in the world, um, I want to go through and put together some kind of like fancy spreadsheet to see which like whether ev- like every disney film i imagine will tick at least two um i've got in my head that like there's there's many that tick all four and we've spoken about those um but yeah i don't know if it'd be interesting to kind of like track that over time or if that's just me and my weird brain that likes to look I, at things i think it would be it would be cool to have maybe for like our last episode and we can kind of see Mm. Yeah, maybe if there's like a pattern, like over time, or how in like how many a... have the Disney death, and how many have yeah. I mean, for like sidekicks and men, like Man and Nature, you could argue for literally every single Disney film. Mm. Um, but like absence of a parent, like I think there's quite a few. You can probably Google parents and stuff in Disney because I think it's that's quite a lot of like theories and lists mm. of like movies where they have no parent or parent dies, but they have one parent or very yeah. few have a actual family unit. Pay Peter Pan is the last one off the top of my head. Where they have two, I guess, 101 Dalmatians. The dogs technically have the, you know, the Roger and Anita. Mm. And even in, in Peter Pan, even though like they have like the two parents, not having a parent is a very like prevalent theme in that Definitely. with the Lost Boys. So yeah. Mm. Okay, that seems more complicated than I initially thought because I don't think it's <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's necessarily just a box tick, which is good because it's not like you know they sat there each time and were like we have to make sure we have these four themes in it this is what someone has looked at afterwards and sort of seen the patterns in disney films and that they generally have these themes to a greater or lesser extent so maybe i will when yeah maybe i will rustle up a little something i think it would be particularly interesting to see if there's like patterns in the decades if there's you know you know say in the 80s or something disney death is like barely a thing and then in the mm-hmm. 90s it comes back i, I think it'd be interesting to, to have a look at that um like i said uh i have a weird brain that enjoys those things anything that i can put into a spreadsheet you better believe i'll put into it's a spreadsheet, gonna be in a spreadsheet. <laughs> it will be and it'll be beautiful um okay <laughs> i think uh, i think that's everything uh yeah. do you have anything else you wanted to add on the rescuers or any final thoughts uh to me this is very emblematic of where Disney is. Mm. Uh, it's very kind of still trying to, even though they're trying to like go back to an earlier time and kind of harken back to that golden age, I don't think this film comes anywhere close to that kind of level. Mm. Um, and again, that could be due to budgeting and they didn't have the money to really like put it together the way they wanted to. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's still, they're still trying to find themselves. This is really only the fourth and really, I don't even know if you can count, I mean, you can count Winnie the Pooh in the total of 58, but they didn't approach it as a feature film. So really, this is the third, uh, you know, the Aristocats, then, um, oh boy, 
Robin Hood, I always forget <laughs> about that. Uh, and then this, you know, this is kind of mm-hmm. the third proper feature film since Walt Disney passed away and, and they were kind of gave themselves new leadership. And then just two films after he passes away, they're kind of changing the guard to a whole new generation of, of, of animators who really take the helm and take the reins in 1981 with the next film, Fox and the Hound. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's kind of emblematic of that. It's it's very middle of the road. I think it's it 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 succeeds at a few things really well. I think some of the character di- designs are great. I like Bob and Bianca. I like their dynamic. Uh, you were saying you know there's surprising progressive aspects of this movie which are cool. Um, the water scenes that involve water are really great. Once they're in the bayou, it gets really interesting. It's just plagued by um, desire. Maybe it's just too much of a desire to kind of recall older and better things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that kind of is definitely emblematic of, of Madame Medusa and yeah. even um, Mr. Mr. Snoops. Very kind of like <laughs> uh, Horace and Jasper kind of thing. Mm. Um, so it's it's very clear, especially when you look at the vehicle and their general appearance, that this was supposed to be, or they initially conceived it as, as Cruella de Vil returning in like a proper sequel to kind of like 101 Dalmatians. Mm. Um, so it's interesting. But it's an interesting movie. It was really successful. People still like it. And, and there were aspects I liked. But overall, it, it, it is definitely on the lower tier. And I can see why it's called the Bronze Age. Yeah. Yeah, I think if any film is is indicative of why this age is called that, I think it's this. It does fall kind of slap bang in the middle of, of the films for me so far in that it's, I think, towards the lower tier. But it certainly isn't anywhere near the the golden era and those kind of first five films which for me are still in my ranking at the moment at least still the best um it isn't as bad as some of the the package films um and even some of the ones we've watched recently like you know we we certainly had our thoughts and shared them on robin hood um but it definitely it falls into that that kind of area i think where it's just absolutely Fine. I'm sure at some point in the future, I would like to watch this again. Like I said, this is my first watch of it, so I think maybe I do need to watch it again at another point. I would quite like to, you know, double bill it with the Rescuers Down Under, um, as well, just because I mm-hmm. can remember liking that a lot more. So I think maybe the two, maybe the two together. But it's weird to come at a film like this completely as an adult. Like I have absolutely no connection to it obviously because this is the first time i've watched it as a 29 year old so i don't i don't have that nostalgia to lean back on i don't have that you know sense of that i I loved this when i was a child or anything like that which i have with so many of them so a really interesting one for me where i kind of just have you know have to think about it and grade it just as the film as the film it is and i think that kind of firmly places it in that like middle to lower tier at the moment um mm-hmm. like you said a lot of a lot of really good elements i do love the character design i wrote in my notes uh that uh bianca is fashion um because You're i really i really love her outfits um big fan of the purple which is my favorite color so i want um her and sir hiss to like do a fashion <gasps> show oh my gosh that's the (laughs) that's the spin-off we all need and deserve no one has ever asked for and i guarantee you no one's had that idea before i put my put my life in (laughs) for someone who's like it was me i wanted to do it no way no one has ever thought of that nonsense yeah do it let's do it 
Yeah, just a series of like matching like hat and capes. Um, like um, like Ken doing the runway in Toy Story. 3. Yeah. Um, just like that for like an hour and a half of those two. I would, I would like that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Look, we are we we've not the first time that we've come up with a wild idea for Incredible a spin-off idea. sequel or remake or something, but. Look, if that if that idea has got has got something, you know where to contact us. Uh, <laughs> we would love to develop that one. Um, okay, yes, I think that before we spend too long thinking about this insane sequel, um, we will get on out of here. So, um, of course, uh, as always, we want to say a huge thank you to our Patreons um, and a big thank you for their support. So the Patreons who get their special podcast mention every week are Chris Wilson, let There Be Light Productions, Zoe Baines, Daryl Griffiths, Sam Luck, Orla Smith, Peter Hodgkins, Andy Meakin, Fabiana Rosas, Hamish Calvert, and Martin Richmond. Thank we you. We got a new one. We got a new one. <laughs> yeah, I, I, was, I was wondering if you were going to notice then and sense that I'm getting more out of breath as I read <laughs> as I read <laughs> the names. Uh, soon that segment will take up 10 minutes and we will be delighted. Um, yeah, a big thank you uh, to those guys for their support. And a thank you to all of our uh, other Patreons as well. You can find out how to become a Patreon on Jump Cut's website um, and find out about all the cool perks and stuff you get, including getting your name read out on the podcast. Um, so do go and have a look at that. And uh, that just leaves me to say a huge thank you, as always, to you, Barry, uh, for being fabulous, wonderful company um, and not judging me for my risky Google that I had to do. <laughs> It is always a pleasure to co-host. Oh, thank you. <laughs> oh dear, I'm gonna erase my uh, internet history. Even when you history. reveal the deep, dark secrets of your life, I, I stand by you. Yeah, whilst I'm erasing my Google search history, do you want to tell uh, the good people where they can find you on the <laughs> Absolutely. internet? Absolutely. <laughs> you can you can find me on Letterbox at B Levitt, and you can find me on Twitter at B Levitt ninety three. Yes, indeed, and you can find me at Sarah Buttery, and you can find all of us at Jumpcast underscore. You can check out all of our written reviews, features, interviews, news, and more at jumpcutonline.co.uk and go straight to jumpcutonline.co.uk forward slash jumpcast to find out where you can find all of our podcast episodes. The next Jumpcast episode will be dropping on Monday and we'll be back with a brand new Disney episode talking about The Fox and the Hound next Friday. So we'll see you then. Thank you.